Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Take out the jails, Hello. Brother Wayne, it's Matt. How are you? I'm pretty good. You? I'm doing all right. Yeah. You know, it's been a bit of a weird year, hasn't it? But um, we're here. So that's something to be grateful for. Indeed. <laughs> Where's home for you these days? Where are you living? In Los Angeles. And what's the what's the mood like over there at the moment? Obviously, I know it's been, COVID aside, a pretty crazy time over there this year. What with, you know, the protest movements and wildfires and watching it from this side of the pond it's been like you know watching some form of apocalyptic movie unfold um how have you found this year personally yeah it's dystopian <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh it's been a, a hell of a year uh you know california is uh, a blue state so you know in my world and my friends we're all kind of on the same page but I know the rest of the country, um, you know, there's about a 30% uh, population of the electorate that, uh, you know, they they uh, find Donald Trump to be their champion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's not going to go away if Trump goes away. 
Yeah. And I mean, for you personally, you've obviously lived through, you know, all kinds of different eras of politics and, and you've seen it all in your lifetime. The last four years for you, how would you characterize them? Have they been drastically different to, you know, terms of office that have come before? Like what's Trump's state in power being like uh, for somebody like yourself who has, you know, spent his whole life opposing people like him? Um, how would you characterize life as an American, you know, and a Democrat for the last four years? Uh, it's been horrific. <clears throat> I used to, I, I get this question from time to time, and I used to say, well, you know, the Vietnam War, 55,000 young Americans died, so that was worse. But now, you know, Donald Trump has directly been responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of Americans. So, uh, you know, this is this is worse than it was in the 60s. The corruption is worse. The the disconnect between um, the truth and a lie has become worse. Um, and uh, and uh, you know the the general you know sense of of uh, confidence about the future is much worse. How do you feel about the upcoming election? How do you see that panning out? Well, I've been clocking it pretty closely, and and uh, all indications say that Americans are sick of Donald Trump, and they um, will not vote him in for another term of course it's like horse racing anything could happen yeah well that was proven four (laughs) years ago wasn't it yeah and no one was more shocked than donald trump (laughs) yeah i think he thought oh god the joke's gone too far I saw a really interesting documentary about how it all started, and I don't know to what extent this is complete accuracy, but they were exploring the roots of his campaign and how it all got you know, geared up, and they were trying to say that it was because he was on that show and, and he found out that Gwen Stefani was getting paid more than him to be on The Voice, and that was what sent his ego into overdrive, and he wanted to kick back at the networks, and, and that was how the whole political campaign got started. I don't know to what extent that's 100% true, but if it is, damn you, Gwen Stefani. <laughs> yeah, well, that and his his uh, his uh, petty, um, small, um, but all-encompassing uh, desire, his resentment for Barack Obama. Uh, you know, I, I think it had a lot to do with that uh, White House correspondence dinner where, you know, Barack and a couple other people made jokes at Trump's expense. And, you know, he cannot tolerate being teased or being mocked. And I think, I mean, it's petty and it's small, but that's who he is. Do you think he'll get reelected or do you think he's on his way out? I think he's on his way out. Well, that's good. I certainly, that's my fervent hope. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I want to tell you a quick story, Wayne, before we get into the story of your, you know, storied and incredible life. I want to share with you my first ever moment live on radio. So I've been doing this stuff for about 10 years now, radio shows, TV shows, podcasts. And my first ever appearance on air was uh, guesting on my friend's radio show in Exeter in England at the time. And he said, why don't you come on and play 10 songs? So I took in 10 vinyl records and I wanted to kind of trace what I thought was the evolution of punk, which is a genre that means a lot to me. And for me, mm-hmm. it begins. For, I mean, I would say you could even trace it back to the fifties. For me, Little Richard was punk, and, and the Sonics, and you know, there was bands before you guys. But for me, it really, it really began with the MC5 and the Stooges in Detroit in '69. And so, the first song that I played was "Kick Out the Jams." However, <laughs> I played the version with the motherfucker at the start of the track. So I'm on my friend's show. It's the first song of 10 that I'm supposed to be playing. I set it all up. I contextualize it. I give him the vinyl. He drops the needle. Kick out the jams. Motherfuckers. And then he starts panicking. And he's like, we've got to take the record off. I was like, no, it's fine. I completely forgot about that. That is my bad. But that is the only swear word in the song. Don't worry. The damage had already been done, of course. Thankfully, he got to keep his show. He wasn't ejected from it. Uh, But that was my rather illustrious debut in the world of radio and was dropping a motherfucker within minutes of being on the air. (laughs) I'm so proud. (laughs) so i guess the story of the mc5 really begins in detroit um i wonder if you could share with me some of your memories of growing up there and you know that place obviously was for a period in time the epicenter wasn't it of industry and and culture in america and you had obviously all the car factories and you had motown you had this influx of multiculturalism and masses of people flocking there in search of you know employment and you obviously had the strong labor unions and everything there what's your earliest memories of growing up in detroit and how did you see that city change uh, over time my earliest memories um were of uh schoolmates uh, of color you know that i had black neighbors and mexican neighbors and to me it was perfectly normal. I didn't really become aware of the fact that America was a segregated nation until I started to go on tour in the MC5 as a young man to see that, you know, all the white people lived over here and all the people of color lived over there uh, because it wasn't like that growing up in Detroit for me. And, you know, my mother was a beautician and uh, she opened the first interracial beauty salon in Detroit where white women and black women could both get their hair done in the same business. Um, So, you know, those, those things were normal to me. It was very exciting to grow up in the fifties and early sixties in Detroit because it, it was a boom town. And all things were possible. Whatever you wanted to get into, you could find other people that were into it. And for me, uh, you know, dreaming of one day being a professional musician, um, there was uh, abundant employment. Uh, The clubs all over the city had live entertainment. And the factory workers worked three shifts. And these were a lot of young people, young men uh, with good money in their pockets. And they wanted to go out and go to a club and meet a girl and and have a drink. And uh, 
So, you know, everything was possible. Wasn't till I became a teenager that I started to realize that people of color were not sharing in the prosperity of the boom town, that, that people of color were not part of the uh, political establishment. They weren't part of the, the social establishment, the economic um, uh, benefits that were as a result of uh, the success of the auto industry. <clears throat> and um, that, uh, you know, they were people of color were on the receiving end of um, thuggery by the Detroit Police Department. And, you know, as I became a young man and <clears throat> was part of a generation that saw the nation uh, as hypocritical and uh, disconnected from the reality of people's lives, um, it, it, uh, it forced me into a militant stance. I, I was uh, frustrated with the slow pace of change and I felt like maybe with my band and my friends in our community, we, we founded the White Panther Party to um, endorse the Black Panther Party and to do parallel but separate work in our own community. How have you found this year in the events of the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and have you seen any parallels between what was going on, you know, when you were growing up and now? Is it different? Is it similar? You must have noticed certain patterns that remind you of then, but I was I was interested to know whether you thought about the ways in which things are different now as well. Well, the main difference is, of course, social media. Yeah. But the, the actual organizational dynamic of, you know, people taking to the street um, you know, a lot of that's the same, but a lot of it's different because um, I, I'm not sure that street protests are, will get us anywhere. Rage is not a strategy. Rage isn't a, a plan. You know, people go on the street because they're angry, but things don't change because you're angry. You can get a start there. It, you know, that can be the the instigation of change but change comes very slowly and with a lot of hard work work that isn't sexy you know work that um isn't glamorous you know it's not exciting it's it's just work uh, organizing communities organizing um pressure on politicians i mean <clears throat> I was reading an interview yesterday with uh, Angela Davis, one of my intellectual and political heroes. And she said it's the activist's job to prepare the next generation to push, push, push the leadership uh, to more progressive policies because on their own, they won't change. They only change when pressure is brought to bear. Do you feel, because I feel like back in the 60s, you know, from, from somebody who didn't live through those times but has studied them at great length, it seemed like then music did have the power to affect positive change. It could change the world. I feel like music had that vital potency back then. 
I don't feel like that's the case anymore. I'd love to get your thoughts on whether you think that, you know, music and, and art has that same potency and power to change the world, or is it a bit too diluted and there's just too much quote-unquote content now that the impact and the immediacy of it has been watered down? What's your thoughts, Wayne? I agree with you. Um, you know, the uh, in the 60s, our music, young, the music of the younger generation, <clears throat> was like our town hall meeting. That's where we all met. You know, if you loved... Uh, a Rolling Stone song, and I love that song, then we were both Rolling Stone fans, and, and we met in the song. And some of the songs carried a powerful message. Uh, you know, Bob Dylan's songs, uh, you know, Blowing in the Wind, as a, you know, the Masters of War. These were powerful uh, expressions of the frustration that we all felt. Um Today, music is one of a hundred distractions, really. You know, it's it's my belief that art, and in our case, music, is uh, its purpose is to make you think, to make you feel, to make you question. And what we have today is art and music that's designed to distract you yeah. to keep you um, amused for a while. Uh, so, and then they shut it off at 11 PM. So you go to bed and get up in the morning and serve your corporate master again tomorrow. It's I interesting, mean, it's, isn't it? Know, because back, back, back when you were coming up, like there was plenty to write about and rally against. I don't think there's any less things to be inspired by and angry about now. It's just that people aren't doing it for whatever reason. Well, it, it doesn't affect most people. I mean, in this country, you know, it's a very, very small percentage of the population that fights the wars. In the 60s, you know, all young men were subject to conscription. And so everyone... The war was was brought home. It was brought home to your own dinner table. Um, today, you know, that's something that exists off in the distance somewhere. Just like you know, the, you know, the, the the people that support Donald Trump, uh, they're angry and they don't understand how the world has changed. They want the world to stay like it like they think it was in the 50s, um, you know, where this was a white nation and everybody went along with the program. Well, the fact is, this is not a white nation. This is a diverse nation of, of all kinds of cultures, you know, gay people. And and uh, the, the, there's a part of the population, mostly um, non-college educated white men, who they just don't understand it. They don't get it. And they don't, they, what they don't understand, they fear. And, you know, so they, so they support, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, authoritarian like, uh, Trump to, to, uh, express their, their anger. 
You mentioned the White Panther Party a moment ago. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about John Sinclair and, and his role in the the early years of, of MC5 and, and his, I don't know, his character. Like, what was he like as a guy, first of all? He seems like a, you know, unique individual. He was a, just bigger than life, charismatic, hilarious, wicked smart fellow he was a few years older than me and he became my mentor and uh and he taught me a great deal about how the world works and how we got where we are today and he exposed me to the free jazz movement for which i will be eternally grateful because you know i was a, a young man in my i was 19 i think when i met him or maybe 18 and, you know, I had this rock band, the MC5, and we were doing some interesting things. You know, I was, I was inspired by um, some of the British artists like Pete Townsend and, and uh, Jeff Beck. And uh, I was trying to, to figure out where to go with, my, with, with the guitar, the electric guitar, and with my band. And when I discovered the free jazz movement, the path became clear that the future was in going beyond the beat and beyond the key to a more pure sonic dimension. And that obviously complemented the incendiary politics in the lyrics and the songs as well, right? The two were a package that served each other that had a powerful impact. And obviously the first record famously was recorded live. Uh, was the goal for you guys to just be like the most ferocious live band on the planet when you were starting out? Was that the intent of the MC5 was let's get out there, let's play everywhere, let's hone this live show and let's fucking attack them with our sounds, with our ideas, with everything. I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we wanted, we didn't want to entertain people. We wanted to destroy them. We, we wanted um, our performances to be a uh, life-changing experience that you, that you will have never seen or heard anything like what we're about to do to you. And for the most part, that was true. There were no bands with the the intent that the MC5 had because we addressed our audience's concerns directly, head on. When I stood on stage and raised my fist in the uh, power to the people salute and the kids in the audience raised it back, we made a powerful connection that said we understood each other, that we shared um, the, the same fears and the same hopes and the same anxiety and the same dreams. Um, um, you know, where a, a lot of the bands, you know, they, it was about, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I've studied Elmore James. I'm a blues man. Yeah. Well, okay, great. But, you know, I think there's something more important going on than, than, uh, than that. I was reading that, you know, early on you would open up for a couple of bands of note, like Big Brother and the Holding Company and Cream, and you would <laughs> blow them off the stage. Is that right? Like, did you kind of get to, you know, open up for, for acts that were more, 
well known at that stage than you guys and did you give them a serious run for their money with your live show every time <laughs> yeah and it, it was it was something we actually planned and and uh and uh carried through on you know we wanted to to uh to hurt their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. And you obviously didn't just play music venues either. It sounds like you guys played everywhere and anywhere that they'd have you. And even some cases when they didn't want you, you'd still set up and play anyway. Um, are there, are, are there yeah. any famous ones that spring to mind? I know the one you talk about and get asked about, I'm sure the most is the, uh, the Democrat convention, but that, were there a lot of, of incidences and events and occasions like that where, you know, it was just chaos? Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in those days, there were a lot of these, uh, small regional festivals, you know, the Saugatuck pop festival, which, you know, might've drawn 2000 people, but they were great events for us. And uh, sometimes, you know, the police uh, would go on a rampage. Uh, sometimes it was, you know, a group of bikers. Uh, yeah, we played a lot of riots. Have you seen them? Have you, <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the new movie on Netflix yet, Wayne, the Chicago 7 film? I have not seen it, but I've read a great deal about it, and we've been talking about it a lot. And uh, apparently uh, Zemeckis rewrote history. You know, he had the transcripts from the trial, which could not be more dramatic. And then he has a band playing in the park that's like a folk band. Yep. You know, the MC5 was the only band to play, and, you know, we, we hardly played folk music. I mean, it was folk music in a larger sense, but it wasn't folk music like Peter, Paul, and Mary folk music. Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty disappointed in, in hearing about it. I've yet to see the film, but um, so far it doesn't sound good. It happens all the time in the movie business. You know, they rewrite history, but it was unnecessary necessary at this case history would have been fine and you obviously lived it and i mean the level of brutality and violence on display that day was it like was it savage oh absolutely and we all knew it was coming you know the chicago police department was infamous everyone knew across the country that there was going to be a police riot and you know they were the biggest gang in town it's lucky you got out then, isn't it? Yeah, well, we we played our we had played enough riots where we <laughs> knew that once the band stops playing and the crowd doesn't have anything to focus on, the riot will start. So we knew that's what was going to happen. And the minute we finished our set, we threw our gear in the van and got the hell out of there. Smart move. How well did you know people like Fred Hampton and, and Huey Newton? Did you know those guys on a personal level? I didn't know Fred or, or uh, Huey, but I knew David. I still know David Hilliard and uh, uh, Sam Napier from the, uh, the uh, Oakland Black Panther Party. And uh, we had Black Panthers in, in uh, Detroit and Ann Arbor that uh, we were friends with and are still friends with. There's so many interesting figures from that time. I'd love to just pick your brain about quickly. Um, Allen Ginsberg, did you ever have any interactions 
or experiences with him? We played a show early in the band. Once in the beginning, when Sinclair decided to manage the band, there was uh, an event uh, at Wayne State University in Detroit. And um, it was like a literary, poetic rock concert. And Allen Ginsberg came and he... um, did some poetry and engaged the audience. And then the MC5 played. And afterwards, I went to him and said, uh, Alan, Alan, what did you think of our band? You know, and he said, sounded like the cosmos um, smashing into each other, that planets were exploding and, and bursting in space, <laughs> which I thought, wow. Great review. <laughs> That's a, a, the and best like description it. you could hope for, isn't it? <laughs> well. <laughs> How about Danny Fields, Wayne? He was a key figure early on as well, right, in, in getting you guys signed and, and kicking off the whole campaign. Yeah, Danny was uh, the talent scout for uh, Electra Records. In those days, they called him the house freak. And his job was to go out and find exciting new acts And um, he came out to Detroit and saw 3,000 kids going crazy for a band that uh, never made an album that, you know, were virtually unknown outside of Detroit. And he went back and told his bosses that, uh, you know, there's a band up there that's fantastic. He asked me at one point, are there any other bands around like the MC5? And I said, no, there are no other bands like the MC5. But you will need to see our brother band, the Psychedelic Stooges. And of course, he loved the Stooges and signed both bands on the same night. Incredible. And they're the two bands for me that that really got it all started and inspired everything that followed and obviously as you say very different bands um iggy back then was he like that star in the making even early on could you see that there's you know this great force on stage and this this fucking powerful front man was inside him and was getting you know getting ready to unleash on the world it was undeniable he brought so much to the table um that just over you know it overwhelmed audiences and a lot of them were hostile to the Stooges. And, you know, we had them play with us uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times all over the Midwest. And, and sometimes it got rough, you know, those, those uh, factory rats and greasers, they didn't know what to make of this guy out there dancing like a, you know, like a demon you know, who shaved his eyebrows off and was wearing white uh, mime face. And the band, the music was so primal and and simple and dense that they didn't know what to make of it sometimes. It was great. <laughs> I loved every night with them. And they were my personal friends. And, and um, Iggy and I are still uh, great friends to this day. 
Why do you think it was that what you guys were doing sounded so different and was so different by its very nature and content to what was going on on the West Coast of America at that time with the hippie psychedelic scene and flower power? Like, it's night and day, isn't it, between what was going on over there and what was happening in Detroit? Was it the geography and the just the, the vibe in the air of the two cities, obviously LA and, and Detroit being so different? Was that really what made it what it was, or was there other elements at play? I think there were other elements applied. I think the, and this may sound like a stretch, but I think that organized labor movement that uh, originated in Detroit with United Auto Workers um, generated, and Detroit being a a, uh, industrial city, manufacturing city, that there was... um, uh, the sense of of honor in hard work, that hard labor was an honorable thing, a noble thing to undertake. You know, working in the factory was hard, um, but it paid well, and, and a guy could raise his family on that money. Um, and uh, Detroit has a long, long tradition, going back to the turn of the century, of great musicianship. Um, you know, when the when the uh, the touring big bands needed like a new tenor player or a new trombone player, they went to Detroit because um, at Northwestern High School and at Cass Tech, the music programs were the best in the country, and Detroit produced uh, the best musicians. So the bar was much higher for us um, in Detroit. You know, we knew what. Uh, mastering your instrument meant we knew how to play in time we knew how to to, uh, construct songs and I don't think that the bar was that high on the west coast I mean these guys they were all folk musicians who you know got electric guitars but never really understood how to use them and the rhythm sections on the west coast I thought were always subpar I mean, in Detroit, we all wanted to sound like that Motown recording band yeah. who are the best band in the world. Yeah, so tight. And, and as you say, just perfectly crafted songs. Like when you think about that assembly line, which is kind of what it was, wasn't it? In the same way the factories were, you know, it was an assembly yeah. line of, of hits and they just churned them out. Do you think when Motown left Detroit, that had a negative effect on the city. When do you feel like the city began to fall on hard times? Well, I think the inflection point was the rebellion of 1967. Uh, There had already been a white flight in place. You know, white people were leaving the city and moving out to the suburbs. And after the... um, uh, rebellion, um, they all, everyone armed themselves. I mean, Detroit used to be an average city like any other city, but after the rebellion and, and, uh, people, guns flooded the city, uh, you know, everything started to become dangerous. Uh, you know, heroin invaded the city at the same time. And so you had kind of a perfect storm. The auto industry started collapsing. So you've got, 
you know, uh, tens of thousands of workers with no work, um, no money, and, uh, you know, desperate situations develop, and desperate situations often instigate desperate acts, and uh, many people turn to uh, antisocial behavior, and, uh, you know, the city became the murder capital of America. One year we had over 800 murders uh, in Detroit. I mean, it really, it got very scary. What elements do you think were at play and conspiring against your band as well? Because when you look back at those first three albums, and I know you've spoken in the past about how you've kind of got certain issues with the, the sound quality of, of them for different reasons, perhaps. Uh, I think they're flawless and amazing. I particularly love Back in the USA. I think that's such a great rock and roll record. Uh, High Time obviously was kind of an indication of where the band might have taken things even further, but they were great albums. You were out there, you were doing it. What do you think it was that slowed the band down, that got in your way, that ultimately tore you all apart? Well, I only know this in retrospect, you know, but as I look back on it, I think one of the key factors was John Sinclair going to prison for nine and a half to 10 years for possession of two joints. Um, He was our interlocutor to the world of the music business. Right. Uh, And, and, you know, when he went to prison, we did not have a representative. Uh, and, uh, you know, that I think that was the difference. You know, we didn't have a Bill Graham in Detroit, you know, someone that understood business, someone that advocated for the artist. And uh, I was basically left on my own to try to figure out what to do with how to manage the band. Uh and, you know, the dynamic of the industry is such that uh, it's virtually impossible to represent yourself. And, uh, and uh, you know, what, what was exciting and thrilling in 1968 by 1971 was getting very complicated. And uh, we, you know, when Kick Out the Jams was banned, um, that, that, was another straw to add to the camel's back. And, and, uh, we never really recovered from, from that, um, uh, censorship, you know, that, that suppression. Uh, and, you know, the MC5, you know, we wanted to change the world. <laughs> we weren't just concerned with being a hit band. We had a, a bigger agenda in our back pocket. And uh, after a while, the music industry said, you know, these guys are just too much trouble. And we were too much trouble. We were crazy. And, uh, and they had new bands that, you know, just wanted to boogie or just wanted to be stars. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be a star, too, but I, I wanted, you know, an end to the war. I wanted uh, uh, civil rights for, for all Americans. I wanted justice. I wanted peace. Um, I wanted a beautiful, creative existence. And, and what I got was Richard Nixon and, uh, and, and FBI uh, suppression. And, uh, and in the end... Um, my own 
frailty um, turn to substance abuse. And that never helps the situation. Of course. So, yeah, there, there were a lot of things stacked up against the idea of these five guys from Detroit who had this revolutionary sound and, and a militant political stance. Uh, there was a lot working against us. And, mo- and most of it, uh, or at least a great deal of it, came from inside the band itself. Yeah, yeah. And when the band does end, do you fall on real hard personal times then? Does that affect you in a very deep, negative way, the end of of your dreams, as it were? Destroyed me. Destroyed me. I I didn't even realize um, what what I, the loss that I suffered. You know, it was not only uh, a rock band, but this was my community. These were my best friends. This was my um, place amongst my peers, my status, my identity was all wrapped up in being Wayne Kramer from the MC5. And when that went away, I was not prepared to, to cope with it successfully. And I turned to anesthetizing myself with uh, vodka and heroin. And then you get arrested, right? And and you you do. Is it three years you spent in jail? Two years? How long were you were you inside? Just about three years. I the judge gave me four, but I was a model prisoner, so they let me early. Let me out a little bit early. Yeah, I, I just lost my connection to everything that was important to me, and fell in with a very uh, rough group of. Of, uh, fellows and uh, you know the truth is I'm not a gangster I'm not a killer I'm not a gunslinger and I had no business doing the things I was doing and clearly I wasn't very good at it because I got busted right away a few times so yeah you were running with some serious criminals were you it wasn't just like a John Sinclair thing where you just got a bit of personal on you and and it's possession were you were you rolling with some some dark yeah, dudes. They, yeah, they were they were heavyweights, and it was very dangerous. I I very narrowly uh, avoided being murdered myself. How was jail? Awful. Yeah, of course. You know, the main reason is you can't go home. <laughs> yeah, you, you are home, and home sucks. If they don't want you to eat, you're not going to eat. And they don't want you to sleep, you're not going to sleep. And if you want to play it tough, they can play it tougher. So I I learned um, pretty quickly how to do my own time. And I discovered that um, if I just used the skills I had as a musician, I could establish myself as a member of the prison community and and be of service to it by putting on regular concerts um, for my fellows, which everyone appreciated. Yeah, you're obviously an example of, you know, rehabilitation working. Um, Do you feel like the correctional system in America has changed since you were inside? Do you feel like that possibility of, of rehabilitation and redemption is still available to people who are getting convicted. Uh, what's your thoughts on the, the correctional system then and now? Well, 
I, I went to prison at the end of the era of rehabilitation in American corrections. Um, I saw it coming, and they told us that you know the, all the rehabilitation programs are going to end, and now it's going to just be uh, human warehousing. We're going to warehouse people. And um, I watched for 30 years after I was released as more and more people just like me went to prison for longer sentences under worse conditions and uh, found it infuriating. And finally, <clears throat> I got so angry that I knew if I didn't um, take action that this could eat me up. And um, I know that the today the, the only way I can militantly oppose meaninglessness excuse me just a minute no worries can you hold the line just a second please of course life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. My son is uh, across the hall with his remote uh, school and uh, he lost the connection. Parenting in 2020, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. Doing, doing it's, the it's, teacher's it's, jobs it's for them. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, Wayne, you were, say, you were saying about how um, you caught the tail end of the rehabilitation yeah. years. Yeah. So, so in, the, in the ensuing three decades, you know, uh, get tough on crime policies. Uh, politicians started to realize that there were votes in being perceived as, quote, tough on crime. So they passed some very bad laws and started locking people up on a mass scale. And today in America, we have hyper-incarceration, um, which was slowly turning 
back towards rehabilitation because what would happen is uh, that uh, they would lock a person up for uh, 10 or 20 years in a environment that inculcates them in violence, racism, bitterness, defeat, uh, resentment, and then put them back on the street with no programs, no help, no therapy, no education, and expect them to rejoin civic life. And it doesn't work that way. So what we ended up with is, as a result of mass incarceration, we were not safer. We were less safe. So the country has started to realize that, and we've started to see a shift. Um, certainly since the coming of the pandemic, um, more people are being released uh, because they, they can't afford to, to care for the, you know, the 2.3 million uh, Americans in prison. You know, when I served my sentence in the 1970s, there were 350,000 people in prison in the whole nation. Today, it's 2.3 million. There's a really good affecting uh, documentary again on Netflix called The 13th. I don't know if you've seen that, but you're probably completely up, sure. completely up to speed with everything they cover in that anyway. But that was an incredibly eye-opening watch for me as somebody yeah. who lives you know, in the UK. And, and you realize the extent of you know, the, the money that's involved in the prison system yeah. and, and how it's all really driven by that and the kind of you know updating and subtle legalizing again of, of basically slavery isn't it is sort of what's explored in that film is like you know if we can't legally have slavery let's incarcerate these people and enslave them that way it's so fucked up the economics is the most formidable aspect of uh the challenge in justice reform uh you know this is a $90 billion a year industry. You know, they, you know, guard salaries, guard uniforms, the food that prisoners eat, the clothes they wear, the prisons themselves, all these things are bought and paid for by taxpayer money. And uh, they've reached a, a point of diminishing returns. They cannot build any more prisons and lock up more people. The state governments just can't, their economies cannot handle it. The federal government is is handling it better because they don't have a money problem, but still the effects on the society, uh, the damage being done is incalculable. Uh, entire communities have been decimated. Families, millions of families have been destroyed as a result of these get tough on crime policies. It's really been, the, you know, along with the war on drugs, the greatest failure of social policy in American history. Did you get clean when you were in jail and did you stay clean once you got out? Was that you then home free in that sense or did you still struggle with, with addiction issues when you, were, when you were released? No, I didn't get clean in prison. Prison... Drugs are as easily available in prison as they are on the street. Um, and I came out with uh, nothing but willpower, and that's not enough. 
and I continued to to uh, to be an active alcoholic and drug addict for years. Uh, I didn't get sober until I was 50 years old. I'm 72 now. So did you spend the latter half of the 70s and most of the 80s kind of off grid in a creative sense and and kind of yes. just and just wrecking it? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it i was off the grid because <laughs> <laughs> i'm looking at the history of you know your life and your work and you have this incredible run of records in the 90s with epitaph and that must have been such an exciting time for you because that label at that time was booming punk rock and guitar music at that time was booming especially the first record you come out with the hard stuff is so great and for me ranks you know amongst the best stuff you've done but i was like what about this big period before that so that was really just still struggling and fighting with with booze and drugs was it and just kind of working to live i was drunk and and i was stoned and you know the only the only thing being drunk and stoned is good for is being drunk and stoned (laughs) yeah you know it's almost certainly for me it's impossible to be creative um if I'm uh, abusing uh, opiates or I'm drinking, um, you know, to, to be creative, you need to have that inner fire, that desire to create something, that need to do this. You know, you have to, it's, you know, you can't not do it. And um, if I'm stoned, I don't need to do that because all my needs are met. I'm stoned. Um, of course, that's uh, unfortunately a great delusion, and uh, and uh, it wasn't until I got sober again that I, you know, discovered that uh, I can I can look inward and find plenty in there to talk about, and plenty. I have no limit of uh, the amount of music I can create. You know, today as a film and TV composer, if someone hires me to score a film for them. Um, we're not waiting for Wayne to be um, inspired. You have to start writing music now, and you have to get it done on a, on a deadline. You know, everything works on a schedule, and I can do it. I have no problem doing it um, these days. I've done. In fact, I, I love it. I enjoy the process. What was your moment of clarity then? When and how did that present itself when you decided, okay, enough's enough, it's time to get myself sorted? Was there one event or was it a a slow, gradual realization that eventually just it couldn't go on and you had to change? What was it that kicked you into gearing and got you, you know, driven and motivated to clean up? Well, it it, it was, you know, my, my awakening was of the educational variety. I, I had done a lot of research. You know, I'd been using and uh, dependent on substances for a long time. And um, the only thing that ever really got through to me was pain. When, when it hurt so bad to continue um, that I thought it might be better, let me just try this being sober. Let's see how that works. And I found I had a much better um, outcome. Um, I think the single uh, inflection point was I was returning from a European tour and uh, in my epitaph days. 
and uh, I was up in the air, and I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to see anybody. I didn't have to do anything, and I thought it'd be okay if I got hammered. And I woke up with a a young female flight attendant telling me that she was going to have me arrested when we landed in the United States, that she had been warning me for a long time about the yelling and the cursing and uh and uh it was in that moment that i realized that um i was in fact uh a drunken stone rock and roll asshole just the kind of guys that i loathe you know i'll cross the street to avoid talking to people sometimes just because you know they're too big a jerks. And that was me. That's who I am. And that's when I realized I was really uh, ill. I was a sick man and I needed to get some help. And I got back to LA and I called a friend of mine and asked him if he could help me. And uh, he said, yeah, Wayne, we, we don't shoot the wounded. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a just beautifully compassionate thing to say. And, uh, and that was the you know beginning of uh, of uh, my 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 sober life and and the good life the abundant life that I get to experience today. You know I have a beautiful wife and a beautiful son and I enjoy the respect of my peers and and I have good friendships that I can enjoy and I can be a friend to my friends and. I can be a husband to my wife and I can be a boss to my employees and I can be a student to my teachers. And you're at peace with your past now. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Sure. I mean, you know, these things, uh, they're always there and you know, I'm an imperfect man. (laughs) I don't do any of this stuff perfectly, but, um, I, I I put in a hundred percent. I'm, I'm in it measures when you begin to you know lose your friends and contemporaries and and that element of life starts to become more omnipresent everywhere mortality do you find yourself thinking a lot more about life and death as that's happening around you or do you try and stay present in the moment and just enjoy life but obviously it must be there to some extent on your mind like are you a spiritual person what do you think happens when we when we leave this mortal coil uh, I'm not a spiritual person. I have absolutely no regard for anything supernatural. Um, I, I believe in the natural world. You know, when you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> you're not thinking thoughts anymore. You're not feeling feelings. You don't exist anymore. You were here for a second, and then you're gone. And, and that's that's just the way it goes. Um <clears throat> I, you know, yes, I think about death often. Um, uh, you know, this is one of the great questions of uh, of, uh, of of life on Earth. You know, uh, how does that work? You know, we're born to die, and uh, there's a there's a larger natural cycle that takes place. <clears throat> so yeah, but what I what I've found is it works for me is. Uh, if I start thinking about, uh, you know, not being here anymore, that to use that as uh, inspiration to 
enjoy the experience of this moment. You know, I'm not so much interested in the meaning of life as I am in the experience of life. I like that. And legacy, Wayne, is that important to you? Uh, do you give that much consideration? And if so, how would you like to be remembered? I don't because my interests are focused on doing the best I can in the day I'm in. Uh, you know, we're, we're all leaving. <laughs> That's the only and certainty, the right? Yes, we we're all going to fade into the nothingness of history. Very few people um, are remembered over, uh, you know, long millennia, and uh, I don't expect to be one of them. I I just know that what I can make happen right here, right now, is the best I can do, and I try to do that. And uh, I'm not not too concerned. I mean, I, you know, certainly I've. I've made arrangements to care for my son and, and, uh, you know, I have a advanced directive and I have a will and I have a trust and everything. Um, take care of my wife and my son. And, uh, but, but, you know, uh, I'll be gone then. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't directly it affect you. you <laughs> I won't be thinking thoughts. <laughs> Uh, just before I let you go, and I want to say a big thank you for giving up your time and, and talking to me today. I knew it was going to be great, and it absolutely was. And uh, just you know, thank you for the music and so many, so many amazing things that we haven't had time to talk about. I'd like to talk very quickly, if it's okay. You mentioned film scoring, and a lot of people might not know this about you, but you've obviously done a lot of work uh, with Adam McKay, and that for yep. me, that for me is such a bizarre and brilliant pairing. Because, you know, I wouldn't necessarily have put the kind of broad strokes of Will Ferrell comedy and kind of incendiary, hard-hitting guitar music together. But you did score Talladega Nights and Step Brothers. Uh, where does that relationship with Adam begin? And uh, what is the nature of that creative partnership that you guys share? The, um, the brilliant uh, producer, Hal Wilner, was the music supervisor on Talladega Nights. <clears throat> and... They had a composer on the film, uh, and he was good with the orchestra, but he could not rock. His, his rock music sounded like bad movie rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and Hal knew it, and Adam knew it. Adam's a huge music fan. And so Hal suggested they call Wayne Kramer, and uh, I went over and met with him and just made an immediate connection with with uh, Adam uh, politically we were, were both left of left and just found that we saw the world the same way and uh, we started working together and, and uh, a lot of opportunities came my way uh, through Adam scoring uh, Eastbound and Down I love that show um, so much I did a couple others. I did a, a show that just ran for one season called Bad Judge, yeah. which was very funny. Um, but, you know, it just turns out that uh, Adam and I are great friends. And, you know, my wife is best friends with his wife. And we, you know, we all see each other as often as we can. And, uh, you know, he was one of the guys that encouraged me to, to, uh, to be a father. 
He said, you know, Wayne, you will love it. You're perfect for it. You should, yes, absolutely go for it. And he's right. I, I do love it. And, uh, fatherhood is uh, my the coolest thing I ever did. It's amazing as well. You became a dad at 65 and, and obviously all the, the hard living and the juvenile behavior is well out the system by then. And, you know, I think you are in a good position to be the best mentor and carer and, and father figure. And, and what a trip it must be to reach that age and then have your life change so much. Most people, when they hit 65, not many big life-changing moments are still coming their way at that stage, are they? Uh, but for you, it's like a whole new chapter, isn't it? Yeah, I get I get to be the new guy again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, final terrific. final thing is the the return of the MC5. I got to see you guys the MC50 incredible show at the Alice Cooper concert last year, um, and wow. it, such a powerful lineup. Billy from Faith No More, who I just spoke to the other week for this show, uh, Kim from Soundgarden, obviously Brandon from Fugazi. Um, I can't remember the name of the amazing singer, but he was on fire and incredible. And the sound, the power, it was so amazing for me as a lifelong fan of, of those songs to hear them live. And I know it's something you've been doing for a while. And is that something you would like to continue doing once, you know, concerts and things are, are uh, allowed once again? Would you like to carry on doing the MC5 stuff and, and keep that train rolling? Of course. You know, you, you spend your youth learning how to do something, <clears throat> building your skills and your relationships, and then you, you know, reach middle age. And in my case, I'm, I'm closing in on the senior period. Um, and I, you know, music is something that's not actually tied to youth. You can continue to develop your ideas and, and your abilities um, to become even more vivid and more stretched out. And uh, so I feel like I'm playing better than I've ever played. I understand what it, how a band works better. Uh, I think I'm a good band leader. And um, um, yeah, I, I listen, I love playing music for people. I mean, that's, I got into this in the first place because they clap. <laughs> <laughs> It must be amazing to, you know, still be playing those songs as well and have them just so rapturously received as they were at that Alice Cooper concert and I'm sure as they were at all the shows you've been doing. It's amazing. And you must see, like, you know, young fans still in front of you as well, which, you know, 50 or so years almost after starting the band to still be, like, playing to, you know, excited young rock fans, that's a beautiful thing and not a lot of people get to enjoy that, do they? No, and, and, you know, it wasn't a, a certainty for me. When when we started uh, MC50, we went to Europe and played a few festivals. And the first one we played, I think it was somewhere in Sweden or Denmark. And there might have been 5,000 kids. You know, maybe half of them had ever heard of the MC5. The other half had no idea who we were. And uh, I knew that, and I was really clocking it closely. And by the third song, we had won the audience over. They understood exactly who we were. Hell yeah. You know, this hard rock music, um, everybody gets it. Everyone understands it. And it didn't take long for them to, to uh, warm up to the band. And then 
the crowd continued to build. By the time we finished the set, we had probably twice the audience. You know how it is at festivals. People walk around from one stage to the other. And our we drew more and more people. So once I knew that <clears throat> the music still had um, a compelling uh, force to it, uh, I knew we'd be all right. And of course, now we've we've toured all over the world, and and uh, we have a ball every night. The band really plays well together, and we enjoy what we're doing, and and that's contagious. And you know, there's so many bands that have been influenced by you that even if they don't know the name or the songs, these younger audience members, I think, as you say, as soon as you present what you do to them, they make that connection and go, "Oh yeah, this is like Rage Against the Machine" or "At the Drive-In," or you know, I know I know this sound, I know this aesthetic. Yeah. Right, 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 right. The tour that needs to happen next year or, or soon in, in the future is Rage Against the Machine, MC50 opening. That's the one, right? <laughs> I just, just before the uh, pandemic hit, I ran into Zach uh, just when they had just agreed to do it. And, and uh, he said, man, whatever you want, Wayne. So I don't know, I might, I might revisit that. Hell yeah. Needs to happen. Needs to happen. Um, Wayne, thank you so much, man. You're a legend. You're a gentleman. I've really, really enjoyed this and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you. I hope to see you in person someday, man. I'll get down to a show and make myself known and, and say hello. But yeah, yeah. thanks make again. Make sure you come back stage so I can, I can put a face to the, to the voice. I'll be sure to do that. Um, have a great day and good luck with the rest of homeschooling. <laughs> keeping you, keeping you on your toes with these Zoom classes. Thanks so much, Wayne. Please, please say thank you to your lovely wife as well for all her help in making this happen as well. She's been amazing. Will do. Thank you, mate. Till next time. Bye bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.